and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 30 of the podcast, titled Killing Gandhi. And just a quick heads up before we get started, I've posted all of my podcast on YouTube now. So if you search From My Mom's Basement podcast on YouTube, you should be able to find all of my episodes there. Without further ado, let's get into it. Dogs have no morals, no guiding ethic. They're unprincipled animals controlled only by their passions, lust, violence, and hunger. By this logic, I think it's morally sound to kill dogs. In fact, we might have a moral obligation to kill them. So that's what I've decided. I'm going to kill my neighbor's dog. Don't worry, I'll make it quick, but not necessarily painless. I'm not sure if his mutt deserves that kind of mercy. But before you condemn me, let me at least list the grievances I have with this pup. There are always two sides to every story, and my side is, well, the better one. So he belongs to my neighbor, the dog. And it's not like this neighbor lives down the street or something. No, we share a duplex. And having a duplex neighbor is a very unique, almost intimate relationship. You are, for all intents and purposes, living in the same house under the same roof. It's like you're cohabitating or something. For those of you who don't know, a duplex is essentially one house that's been crudely balkanized into two distinct domiciles. It's cheaper than owning an entire home, sure, but you end up paying a high price for it in other ways, like having to share the backyard and the front porch and one entire paper-thin wall of the house. This can be really annoying, especially when your neighbor owns a nasty little ugly demon dog. Just like his owner, the dog is old and graying and severely overweight and stares at me with roomy, egg-yolk-colored eyes. The eyes of nightmares. Eyes which haunt my waking thoughts. I'm unsure of his exact breed, but his pedigree is undoubtedly muddied and questionable. I think his ancestors engaged in incest, or else let a couple rodents sneak their way into the gene pool. He's about the size of a small microwave, the dog, not my neighbor and has a face that's like half decomposed or something, as if his owner exhumed him from a crypt somewhere. His nose and mouth are all crooked and disfigured and of varying shades of caramel and brown, the colors of rotting flesh. Seriously, he's like a zombie dog or something. His teeth are skinny and snaggly and poke right out of his lips like insect antenna feeling for something. And, as a result, The fur surrounding his maw is perpetually coated in a thick brown goop that hardens and turns to a kind of flaky pie crust. But, of course, like most dog owners, my neighbor overlooks these unsightly characteristics and treats the dog like he's a little cherub sent straight from heaven. I mean, this guy kisses his dog on the lips, right on the goop-encrusted mouth, and, in return, lets the monster lick his face with his banana-bruised worm tongue. The horror. He also has this like weird sort of joint problem, again the dog, not my neighbor, and so my neighbor has to carry him everywhere he goes like a babe in arms. And it's not like the dog can't walk, he can, I've seen it. He just has a hard time doing so, he kind of hobbles around like a drunk pirate, and his owner just can't stand to see the dog deal with any adversity whatsoever, so he cradles him like the useless slug he is. It's this kind of dog worship that I find so offensive to my humanist sensibilities. I mean, if we treated each other the way some people treat their dogs, we'd be living in a Rousseauian utopia, for sure. And to add insult to injury, 
My neighbor named his devil pup after the internationally recognized human rights activist Mahatma Gandhi. Key word in human rights activist being human. Dogs have no virtue, you see. They're ignorant of good and evil, thus making them incapable of ever being truly virtuous. For how can you be good, capital G, good, if you don't have the capability of being evil? It's the whole Adam and Eve thing, you know. What I'm getting at is this. If dogs can't be good, good in the philosophical sense, then the only reason people enjoy them is because they're cute, because of a physical trait that they have no autonomy over whatsoever. Meaning the quintessential human-canine relationship is nothing but a shallow organization built on the novelty of physical appearance alone. It's a disgrace. And yet people go gaga for these little propagators of stink and saliva, even when they seem to lack that sole source of their magnetism, cuteness. Gandhi's owner is a prime example of this phenomenon. Gandhi has no cute factor whatsoever, but his owner still bows down at his dirty little paws as if he's some pagan deity. And look, Things wouldn't be so terrible if dog owners' fanaticism remained at this level, personally worshipping their canines. But instead, they have to proselytize. They have a need to get everyone else worshipping their dog too. Like, for example, every evening as I come home from work, my neighbor, as if anticipating my arrival, stands out on our front porch holding his little pooch in the air as though he's an icon or something I should supplicate to, and shouts, Hey Gordon, Gandhi wants to say hi. He says this last part in a kind of affected baby voice, you know the way people talk to dogs, and widens his eyes like a child trying to play all cute-like. I smile and nod and lean over the wrought iron railing that separates our front porch and pet the dog. I do. I pet him. I not only pet him, but, and this is perhaps my greatest sin, I feign enjoyment at the sight of the dog and even express personal pleasure in petting him. This is almost like an out-of-body experience. I lose control of my extremities and watch as my fingers glide through the oily coils of the dog's fur and listen to my voice, which sounds distant and echoey, say, Hey, Gandhi. Hey, buddy. Who's a good pup? It is, and I'm not too proud to admit it, one of my great displays of ideological cowardice. If I were really committed to my anti-dog stance, I'd ignore Gandhi completely and forego all communication with his owner. Instead, I fold like a lawn chair in the face of the pooch and murmur sweet nothings into his ear while thoughts of his murder float around in my head. For the rest of the evening, I'm reminded of my cowardice by the granular residue that coats my fingers, a result of the dog's unwashed fur. It feels kind of like chicken grease mixed with grains of sand. So, anyway, the dog is really ugly and really unclean, but those qualities alone don't warrant his execution. No, it's not necessarily the dog himself that's unbearable. It's what he does that makes me want to shoot him. It's his actions that must be put to an end. For starters, and this is the really big one, he yaps. My lord, does he yap. He doesn't bark, he doesn't growl or woof or snarl. He yaps. Constantly. He's able to reach this magical frequency that excites the atoms in our duplex's shared wall and reverberates through the entire house with an ear-splitting resonance. I'm serious. It doesn't matter what part of the duplex I'm in, if he's yapping, I hear it. Not only do I hear it, but I hear it with a kind of supernatural clarity, as if he's yapping right inside my skull like a perverted conscience. The only way I can escape the racket is to go into our shared backyard, sit down in my plastic lawn chair, and pray that the yapping might end before I go back inside. It never does.
The mutt doesn't know how to shut up. I have this theory that my neighbor, for what reasons I can't say, deliberately excites the animal so as to keep his goopy lips flapping constantly. I have no way to prove this, of course, but I find it hard to believe that the rodent dog would yap that much without some kind of external provocation. At any rate, killing the dog will end the mind-numbing yapping, and if my neighbor really is provoking him, deliberately urging him to yap just to annoy me, then the dog's death will serve as a good warning. Don't mess with me, buddy. Next on the list of the dog's capital offenses, his poop. The dog goes potty in our backyard, our shared backyard, mind you. And what started out as a normal kind of peninsula of poop, a small region in the corner of the lawn that was implicitly sanctioned as the dog's poop area, slowly morphed into an expansive archipelago of dog droppings that stretches all the way across the lawn onto my side of the yard. And let me be clear, there is a known distinction between my side of the yard and my neighbor's. Although no border has been formally drawn, there's this big crack in the cement in the back patio that we've, my neighbor and I, kind of silently agreed will act as our border, stretching all the way through the lawn to the wooden fence on the other side of the yard. This border isn't disputed. I keep my patio furniture, two plastic lawn chairs and a frosted glass table, on one side of the crack, and my neighbor keeps his white trash memorabilia on the other. He's got a torn-up sofa, a pile of rusty piping that was once a structure of some kind, clear plastic Tupperware bins full of clothing and tools and rope, a fire pit that's mostly used as an ashtray, and like six car batteries laid out for some reason. But this is all on his side of the yard, so it's a-okay. The dog's poop, however, is not. I guess Siddiqui's adage might prove to be true. All boarders imply the violence of their maintenance. Because let me tell you, I'm ready to maintain this border through any means necessary. Every time Gandhi pinches off one of his steamy payloads on my side of the yard, my neighbor, who is well aware of the backyard border situation, is essentially giving the pup tacit approval for this criminal violation. And what's infinitely worse, he doesn't pick up after him. Can you believe that? My neighbor literally just leaves the poop to rot and fester on my side of the yard. And you might think, based on the rodent dog's slight stature, that his bowel movements are insignificant. Well, you'd be wrong. I can assure you that this dog has a colon that belongs in a rhinoceros. His poops defy all Newtonian laws of physics. There's no equal or opposite reaction here. Gandhi nibbles on five grams of dry dog food in the morning, and by the afternoon he's expelling pounds of boiling, liquidy stool. Where does it all come from? I ask. And his poops are always like that liquidy. Well, really, they belong in that weird space of matter that isn't exactly solid or liquid. They kind of have the texture of nearly dried Elmer's glue, which makes them kind of impossible to pick up. You might suggest waiting for the poop to harden before collecting it, and I would agree with that suggestion, but the thing is, if Gandhi's non-Newtonian poops are left to harden, they crystallize against the shoots of grass they encompass, meaning I end up having to tear out a square foot of grass along with the poop. It's like I have to kill the host to extract the disease. And yes, I set a square foot. Think cow pies, and you're in the ballpark. Needless to say, his poops have colonized most of the yard, turning it into a kind of reverse minefield, wherein the mines compose most of the land and unsoiled pockets of grass are very few and far between. Forget hosting backyard parties, forget barbecues and playing catch on the lawn, the dog has turned my little backyard into a fecal waste facility.
Now, let's talk about the hair. The dog's hair. This being the last great transgression committed by the little monster, and perhaps his most prolific. My neighbor, when I first moved into the duplex, assured me that his dog was, and I quote, the cleanliest, most hypoallergenic, least liable to shed dog there ever was. I took him for his word. That was a mistake. He sheds, the dog. He's a mighty shedder. He sheds hair in the same manner a car belches exhaust, in a kind of constant stream that's almost imperceptible until you're caught in a room with it. Then it calls attention to itself rather quickly, filling up the space in a very toxic, sometimes fatal way. Listen, I've never once let the little imp on my side of the duplex. Hell would have to freeze and refreeze before I ever invited that mutt inside. He's never so much as crossed the threshold of my front door or looked into my side of the complex. But somehow, as if by osmosis, his hair proliferates my entire side of the duplex. Little, coarse, white strings of the stuff accumulate in the corners of every room, cling to the stitching in my couch cushions, dig their way into bars of bathroom soap, weasel into my food, eggs especially, for some reason, and are seen floating around in the golden afternoon sunlight. I can't seem to escape it, the hair. Sometimes I even wake up with Gandhi's sneaky little strands caught under my tongue or stuck between my teeth like some kind of fibrous floss. It's as if the hair just materializes inside my mouth, out of nowhere. It's a phenomenon, like his poop, that defies all natural laws of science. There's a part of me that earnestly believes, similarly to the yapping, that my neighbor has something to do with the hair. Like maybe he sneaks into my side of the duplex and sprinkles hair around my place like demonic pixie dust or something. Something very unnatural is happening here. Something that exists beyond rationality. Gandhi, the demon zombie dog, has somehow enacted the perfect combination of absolutely annoying behaviors to make a man go batshit insane. I mean, the culmination of these things, the yapping, the hair, the pooping, and the actual physical repulsivity of the dog himself, has turned me into a kind of raving lunatic that wants to destroy what's supposed to be the universal symbol of innocence and loyalty and downright adorableness, the dog. Man's best friend. But I don't care anymore. I want the little bastard dead. I don't want to see his little piss-colored eyes staring at me, judging me. I want him gone. I feel his eyes on me. I hear his little raspy yap in my head. I taste his hair. I smell his poop. And I can't take it anymore. So yeah, I'm going to kill the dog. And I'm not going to make excuses or try to hide behind rhetoric or fancy philosophical arguments. I see this for exactly what it is. Murder. Canine doggy murder. I bought a gun today. It's the first one I've ever owned. It's cold and metallic and smells like old fireworks. It's a little thing, really just a step up from a pea shooter, and it's kind of ugly too. But it'll get the job done. Of that, I'm sure. What? You thought I was going to be sneaky about it? You thought I'd plant a neurotoxin in his food? Or give him a dog treat laced with cyanide? Or leave a chocolate gift basket conspicuously unattended in the backyard? No, no. I'm going to make this a spectacle. Imagine what a loss it would be if I were to kill this dog under clandestine cloak-and-dagger-type circumstances. There would be no honor in that. No. And I've looked it up. Killing a dog with malicious intent has a maximum prison sentence of seven years, but that extreme punishment is only doled out to guys who like to, like, mutilate and torture dogs, 
clip off their ears and eat their internal organs and stuff, not just kill them. So really, I think I'll probably get community service and like probation or something, and the mighty judicial system will call it even. Which is fine by me, buddy. I'd gladly serve 20 years of solitary confinement in the most dreaded Huskow imaginable if it meant getting to see the life leave that little monster's eyes. I'd wake up every morning with a big, pearly grin on my face knowing that sucker was rotting six feet under. What a consolation. So, about the gun. I went to this little pawn shop on the other side of town which was called Dragon Pawn and which does business out of the end of a rapidly deteriorating strip mall whose heyday was probably back in the early 2000s. It didn't even have proper signage, the pawn shop. Its name was stenciled in red spray paint on a giant white vinyl banner which was nailed directly into the cracking stucco of the building. But I figured a place that has a vinyl banner for a business marquee is probably the best spot to get a gun which will be used for illegal activity. The owner of the shop was a tall, emaciated redhead who had a kind of sparkly orange mustache that was groomed and oiled like a Civil War-era colonel's. His shop was chock-full of interesting but useless things. Unicycles, fancy tandem bikes, old fur coats, old army uniforms, high school rings from like the class of 56 or something, scratched electric guitars, and Pokemon cards, which were wrapped in cellophane and propped up on a shelf and lit with little spotlights as if to highlight their extreme value. But, Inside a glass counter, which was kind of theatrically lit by a string of high-intensity LEDs, were rows upon rows of guns, their metal glistening like priceless jewels under the digital light. How can I be a service to you? The General Custer lookalike asked. Well, I said, focusing my attention everywhere but on the guns. I, I need a gun. I mean, I'm looking for a gun, I guess, just in the market for one. Without skipping a beat, as if what I'd asked for were as innocuous as a pack of chewing gum, the shopkeeper grinned and said, Sure, sure, what do you need it for? Hunting? Home security? Concealed carry? Uh, I, I want something discreet, but that can pack, pack a punch, you know? At this request, the shopkeeper's eyes sparkled, as if what I said were kind of provocative or personal. He curled his squirrely face into a smile, which was about 85% silver and gold, and said, Okay, sure, sure, sure. Follow me over here, buddy. He led me over to the end of the glass counter, where a family of small, antique-looking pistols were on display. They were all wooden-handled revolvers that were obviously well-loved by generations of previous owners. Some were probably used in the Mexican-American War, or worn on Wyatt Earp's hip or something. Discreet, eh? The shop owner said, more or less to himself. Something discreet and can pack a punch. Hmm. The shop owner's eyes danced over the fleet of pistols. Well, he said, reaching under the counter and snagging a stocky little gun about the size of my cell phone. You can't go wrong with a snub-nosed 38. I think this could get the job done for you. Whatever that job may be. The shop owner laughed and gave me a saucy wink. Flipping the pistol around, he handed me the weapon handle first. I took the gun and felt some kind of sticky residue on the pistol grip. Gray, papery flecks were peeling off the handle and bonding with my skin. Hey, I said. What is this? Why is it all sticky? Oh, uh, the previous owner probably duct-taped the handle. Makes it harder to find fingerprints that way. Or 
something. <laughs> I don't know. The shop owner winked. Want me to wash it off for you? I have acetone here somewhere. Uh, no, it's all right, I said, turning the gun over in my hand. Is there a way I could test, test this thing out? Hmm, the shop owner growled, tapping his knuckles on the glass countertop. We don't have a legitimate gun range here, but we do have this loading dock out back. We could probably set something up out there. Okay, I said. Sure. The shop owner nodded, grabbed a box of 38 cartridges from off a shelf, and led me through a back door. We came out into this back alley type place, which was lined with trash and junk. Old refrigerators, leather office chairs, and long-lost shopping carts far removed from their stores of origin. A slatted chain-link fence, surmounted with razor wire, stood at either end of the alley, effectively hiding our shenanigans from the public. Let's find some kind of a target, General Custer said, walking down the alleyway, his eyes scanning the piles of junk. Hey, I said, how about this? I pointed to a little white Cuisinart microwave, which was laying on its back with its mouth open towards the sky. Gray rainwater and leaves had collected in it. You sure you want to shoot at that? Yeah, it's exactly the same size as... I mean, yeah, it's, it's the perfect size. Yeah. He shrugged. Okay. We dumped the rainwater out of it and propped the thing up on a discarded bar stool. You sure no one's going to care we're, we're shooting back here? I asked. He nodded. Yeah, the only other businesses here are a Chinese buffet and a crematorium, but they generally keep to themselves. Okay. We jogged back about 20 feet from the microwave, and the Custer guy slid some shells into the revolver and handed it over to me. You know how to shoot one of these? He asked. I nodded. "Uh Uh-huh. I think so. Sure, sure, he said, cupping his ears. Just... Pull the hammer back and point it at the thing you want to kill, or, I mean, shoot, or whatever. I did as he said, pulled the hammer back, pointed the gun at the thing I wanted to shoot, and squeezed the trigger. The gun kicked like a mule and barfed a blue cloud of smoke, and I missed the target completely. The bullet tore over the microwave, smacked into the side of a metal dumpster, ricocheted, zipped back over our heads, and buried itself in a pile of wet garbage bags behind us. Custer laughed hysterically. My ears rang. (laughs) Use both hands, he said. You gotta hold on tight. I put both hands on the grip, tensed my arms, and tried again. Another bang and puff of smoke. This time, I sent the bullet straight into the microwave's face. It punched a hole through its polka dot glass, slammed into its backside, and took the whole thing right off the bar stool with a beautiful, satisfying crash. I'll take it, I said watching wispy tentacles of smoke rise from the gun's mouth. Okay, Custer said, smiling. It's happening tonight. He's away somewhere, my neighbor, and has left Gandhi on the back porch all by his lonesome. Poor thing. From my bedroom window, I see him on the cement down there, wiggling around like a curly maggot. He jumps at the sliding glass back door, yapping all the while. He scratches at the glass, yaps. He jumps at the glass, yaps. He runs out into the lawn, makes a few gimpy laps around the perimeter of the yard, stops, squats down on my side of the backyard, drops a syrupy dookie on the grass, runs back to the glass door, jumps at it, and then yaps again. He's been doing this, the yapping and the scratching and the pooping, at inconsistent intervals all day long, 
I haven't been able to adjust to his sporadic pattern of behavior, meaning, like a baby's cry, it's the only thing I can really think about. I've finally reached the full extent of my madness. I can feel my insanity culminating inside me, a kind of perverse pressure building up in my brain, and it needs to be decompressed somehow. And I think I know how. I move from my window to my bedside table and open the drawer where my snub nose is waiting. It looks like some kind of dormant animal lying in the drawer, like a deadly little reptile or something. I pull it out and feel its weight. It's pretty heavy for such a small thing. Very dense, I guess. Reaching further into the drawer, I grab the gray paper box of 38 cartridges and plunge six of them into the gun's cylinder. The bullets slide into their respective tubes with a satisfying hiss and click that sends shivers down my spine. I head out into the backyard. It's a cool summer evening and find a seat in one of my lawn chairs, nonchalantly setting the gun right out on my table. It thumps loudly against the glass, but the dog doesn't seem to notice. He's right over there, Gandhi, just past the crack in the cement, yapping at my neighbor's back door. I lean back in my lawn chair and put my hands behind my head and smile. Let him yap, I think. Let him have his fun. He deserves that much, at least. Orange and ballooning, the sun starts to sink in the sky. It hangs low enough to be skewered by the triangular tips of my backyard fence. Shadows grow, and yellow lights snap on in picture window panes. I close my eyes and let the last of the sun's warmth glaze my face. Not even Gandhi can ruin this moment. A sweet summer breeze tickles my nose and plays with my t-shirt and makes the trees sing a sweet, quiet hymn. I swing my legs around and prop them up on my table, scooting my pistol with my boot heel, and watch Gandhi with one eye open. What a tragic being, I think. What a waste of life. He hobbles around my neighbor's side of the patio, hugging the edges of his Tupperware bins and sniffing with his malformed nose. He goes to the fire pit and sniffs the charcoal and flattened cigarette butts. He probes them with his tongue, flipping it out in quick snaps like a lizard, and then nibbles on one of the butts with some minor curiosity. He doesn't like how it tastes. He recoils, sneezes, and, as if suddenly realizing he'd stopped, resumes yapping at an increased volume and ferocity. Limping back to the glass door, he starts jumping and scratching all over again. I smile and shake my head. What a sad old thing, I think. A pity. The sun is gone now, and the sky fades from a happy orange to a kind of flat gray the color of granite. All objects lose their color and distinction and turn into two-dimensional shadowy things. Street lamps come on. The backyard becomes very dark. Gandhi's just a little black ball of movement now, skittering around on the cement. I can hear his nails scrape against the concrete, and every so often his dog collar rings like a sad chime. My neighbor still hasn't returned. It's now or never. I sit up in my lawn chair and take a deep breath, reaching for my pistol. Its grip is still sticky, but I kind of like it that way. I stand out of my chair and its plastic legs groan obnoxiously against the grainy cement, alerting Gandhi to my presence. For the first time today, he stops his yapping and looks over at me. He freezes, but twitches his little nose. Hey, Gandhi, I say in a light, happy voice. Hey, buddy, it's okay. His stub of a tail starts to wag, but he doesn't move an inch. 
I walk closer to him, crossing over the symbolic border of our shared yard, and hold out my hands in an expression of peace, even though one holds a gun. He's excited now, I can tell, but doesn't move towards me. His butt is pressed up against the sliding glass door. He breathes in fast, hiccupy breaths and kind of grumbles in excitement, as if he's holding down a yap. I smile and pull the hammer back on my pistol and raise the gun. Now his butt stops wagging and he cocks his head to the side, locking eyes on the pistol. I can just see his pupils in the darkness, beady and half-shrouded by curly white hairs. He isn't frightened. But then again, why should he be? He has no idea what's about to happen. I slide my finger in the trigger guard and place it lightly on the thin metal fang of the trigger. It's a clean shot. I'm no more than ten feet away from the pup, half the distance I was from the Cuisinart. Should be an easy kill, I think. Exhaling slowly, I stiffen my shooting arm and close one eye, aiming the barrel right at Gandhi's grapefruit-sized skull. Suddenly growing bored of me, Gandhi swivels around and looks up at the glass door, waiting for his owner. Oddly enough, however, he doesn't yap. It's as if he's no longer wondering where his owner is. This is good, though, I think. I'll kill him while he isn't looking. Goodbye, Gandhi, I whisper. I pull the trigger. The gun kicks and the bullet sails high above the dog, slicing through my neighbor's glass door. I forgot to use two hands. Gandhi runs away, yapping like a lunatic, and the tempered glass fractures and then atomizes and falls out of the doorframe like glistening snow. Damn it, I say, cocking the pistol again. I swing around and try to zero in on the dog who's now running in frantic figure-eight patterns around the lawn. It's too dark to really even see him, let alone hit a moving target. I trace his pattern with my gun for a moment when I hear a kind of faint moaning sound. It comes from inside my neighbor's house. I turn back towards the shattered door. Something's moving in the dark. There's a silhouette, I think, but I can't make it out. I lower my pistol and try to get a look at what's moving around in there. The moaning comes again. Hello? I say. Peter? Peter, is that you? I Listen, I can explain. I... Materializing out of the darkness, my neighbor falls straight out of the doorframe his face smacking the cement with a clean, bony crunch. Peter? I ask. Peter? He lies motionless, face down on the cement. No more moaning, no breathing, either. In the pale twilight, I see a dark spot on his back, an exit wound. The spot slowly expands down his spine, coloring his shirt a dark, glittering crimson. It's blood. It comes seeping out from underneath his chest, too, silently spreading itself in the darkness like thick oil, falling into the cracks of the cement and rolling up against my shoes. No, no, I whisper. With his collar ringing sadly, Gandhi comes limping back towards his owner. He tentatively hobbles around his body, sniffing it, licking it. He circles around to the blood, looks down at it, and ponders its properties. He cocks his head and looks up at me, as if asking me for permission for something, and then begins to lap up his owner's blood. It splatters his fur, speckling his coat with strawberry pink spots. I stand there, watching him, my ears still ringing from the gunshot, 
and think, I might as well finish the job I set out to do. What else do I have to lose? I raise the pistol at the dog, this time using both hands. Thank you all for listening. That was episode 30 of the podcast titled Killing Gandhi. This episode was written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.